Welcome to South London Hardcore. I'm Jack McEnroy. This is Steve Walsh. Hello. This week we're putting up a couple of blue plaques in South London for innovators in Southwark on the site of the old Orange Street School, Elizabeth Bergwin, who introduced free school meals, and in New Eltham on Southwood Road, Ginger Baker, drummer from Cream, Blind Faith, and many more. If you go to southlondonhardcore.com, you can see pictures of these blue planks that we've erected. Put a lot of work into them, so do do that. But made as well. You know, these are blue plaques that Jack has crafted with his own fair hands. Yeah, using the resources of my employer. <laughs> You're going to leave that in? <laughs> They're on our Instagram as well, uh, at SLHC. Or even if you're not on Instagram, you can go to instagram.com slash SLHC and look at the photos we put up. Some cracking stuff, Steve, isn't there? Yes, some lovely stuff. You should get involved. Yeah. You do it so well. Thank you. We're on Twitter, at SLHC Great as well. Great way to get out of work, isn't it? You do it so well. <laughs> Before we start honouring these two... Uh... Pioneers. Just wrap something up from the last episode. I asked my dad about which taxidermy we had in the house, and it was a tortoise, and as soon as he said it, it came back to me. It weren't in a glass case, it was just a tortoise that he brought back from Holland that uh, I think the head might have fallen off in the end. But it was a once live, now dead Yeah, tortoise. and it had like kind of sharp claws, like you could kind of pick it How up. How do you preserve a tortoise? Uh, same, same varnish? Way, same way as any other animal, I guess, isn't yeah. it? Whatever happened to it? I mean, if you're holding on to it while the head's come off, what were you waiting for? I don't know. We didn't move with it. Right. Too slow, isn't it? I just wanted to mention as well, Steve, right? We, uh, Lakeisha, went on a course with work the other day for computer programming. Right. No, for HTML5, I think. And it seemed like they discord got some kind of deal on sending people on this computer programming course. And so they sent her, and she—I mean, she, she, she could potentially do stuff on the school website or whatever, you know, teach kids, whatever. I don't know. And uh, she said the day, but the day before, she's got like the uh, the itinerary for the day, and there's a section on it on the history of computing, and she goes, uh, <laughs> she goes, uh, do you think I'll mention uh, Charles Babbage? Because obviously, when we did the Science Museum episode, well, when it was a Charles Babbage episode, sorry, and we went to the Science Museum where they've got Charles Babbage's difference engine. Like we were fascinated by it. Uh, yeah. And we were sort of bigging up uh, his importance in the history of computers. And Lakeisha was mocking it, really, wasn't she? Yeah, very she much was, so, yeah. And I think she kind of seemed to have a point where what is the link between this guy making some machine that they didn't even make, like they made it yeah. after he died, and, you know, computers that we have in our home. So anyway, so she... They operate on the same principles and theories. But I mean, no, <laughs> yes. uh, So anyway, she gets back from the course, yeah. And in the history of computing bit, they go. There's like a quiz, and they go, "Which of these three? Which of these three men created the difference engine that is thought to be the first computer?" She's like Charles Babbage. Charles Babbage. <laughs> this is this is the thing. I just say <laughs> this is the value of South London hardcore. Even if all you're doing is just standing on the sidelines, poking us, you can't help but learn something. True. That's how good we are. Imagine, imagine if you're paying attention, you people, you're just getting riches poured <laughs> into your ears. Hashtag more Lakeisha if you want to back on the show. <laughs> when we came up with the idea of doing our own blue plaques, we put a shout out on Twitter for people to nominate their own people associated with South London or from South London that they felt deserved blue plaques. We got a few replies, but our favourite one came from Imogen Lee at Talking 
Immo on Twitter, who told us about Elizabeth Bergwin, a woman I'd never heard of. And Elizabeth Bergwin is a very important person in terms of... It's hard to sort of trace it and extrapolate from it, but you'd say the nation's social development. I mean, her innovation is so important. It's similar to, I was thinking about it, similar to the sort of work of Alfred Nader Salter, mm-hmm. sort of laying the seeds for the NHS. And this or is a similar thing. Octavia there. Hill. Yeah, absolutely. Social housing. housing. Yeah, this is... All South London. These are all... These, well, and this is something we'll get onto, why these things happen in South London. But it is... You're looking at the, the elements that go into making up the welfare state. You're looking at the elements that, you know, become part of government policy and acted into law. But they start off as very personal, individual schemes by uh, just these these motivated people. Elizabeth Bergwin isn't from South London. She's born Elizabeth Cannon in Ockold in Suffolk in 1850. She moves to London and gains her teacher's certificate in 1872. And in 1874, she starts teaching at the Union Street Girls' School in Southwark, which is a newly built temporary school. And then her and the staff are moved on to the Orange Street Girls' School as a permanent fixture in 1874. Also on Union Street, so was it the same building? Or? Yeah, I don't know if it was... Yeah, I don't know. I'd imagine if it was a temporary school, you'd have that in a separate building while the other one's being yeah. finished. And, and it's now Jerwood Space, yeah? Is it yeah, the same like building? It. I mean, I know it's at the same place... But Jerwood's place I've only ever seen from a distance, either from the train or from like the Bricklayer's Arms. Yeah, that's me. Well, that's tomorrow, yesterday, for you guys, or five years ago, if you're listening in the future. <laughs> I'll be putting up the plaque on Jerwood's place, I reckon. So maybe you can update us in the next episode. Can do, can't I? Once Elizabeth Bergwin is established in the school, she realises that the area she's working, the pupils at the school, are living in abject poverty. They're not dressed properly. They're essentially ill from malnutrition and various... Got, like, no-name trainers and stuff. <laughs> it's a real struggle. It's like, yeah, how many stripes on those Adidas? It's <laughs> ridiculous. So she decides, off her own back, that at midday every day, the children should be given some bread and a hot drink which is a pretty simple idea, but had never really been done before. And she goes on to sort of formalise the arrangement by... Does she, does any hot drink? <laughs> it doesn't specify. like a macchiato. <laughs> <laughs> Please, sir, can I have some more macchiato? <laughs> yeah, she formalised the arrangement and goes on to sort out funding from it from an external source. So it starts off as a small local organisation that arranges the funding for the food. But she convinces George R. Sims, who writes a column in the referee, a very popular sports newspaper at the time, to mention it, and suddenly, interestingly, explodes. And a a huge organisation is set up, which is the, the Referee Children's Free Breakfast and Dinner Fund. And suddenly it spreads to other schools in the area and then other areas. So essentially, what we're looking at is, through the innovation and work of Elizabeth Bergwin, the birth of the free school meal, which is, you know, an integral part of 
schools and, and and just you know uh, would have been a massive battle in fighting child poverty and malnutrition at the, the end of the 19th century start of the 20th century and you know developed into you know free milk obviously till Thatcher decides that the last thing poor children need mm. is vitamins and any sort of nutrition <laughs> yeah the last thing we need is for these people to develop healthy strong bodies mm. so that then they can like f- uh, fight back at picket lines not not to forget as well she was key in developing soft scoop ice cream you know which is just it was a pincer, wrecking, children's, pincer movement, isn't wrecking it? children's teeth two weeks ago when school returned for the 2013-14 uh, year Southwark council uh, became the first borough in the country to offer all children in primary school free meals. It started two years ago, all, recep- all new reception children got it. And then last year they increased it to reception to year four. So what is that, eight-year-olds? And I don't know, I don't work in a school. <laughs> <laughs> but you had someone that had uh, these figures to hand. And uh, yeah, and now, so all children in, uh, in under the age, up to, all children up to 11 get free school meals. And uh, I mean, there's been a little bit of criticism about the funding for it and stuff, obviously, because people. What's the criticism? I think Conservative councillors oh, just right. like Scumbags. spend the money on something else. Right. You know? Okay. Because so I was like, what? Who could be? Uh, what sort of animal? What beast <laughs> yeah. would stand against that yeah. and go? Uh, the last thing we want to do is uh, feed children that can't necessarily afford to uh, be fed by their mm. parents. But of mean, course, Conservative councillors would stand against that. I mean, I, I was taking dinner money off parents until you know July when we stopped taking dinner money off parents. Yeah, this must make your job easier. It does slightly, yeah. Oh, brilliant. It's a great innovation. Thank you, Elizabeth <laughs> Bergen. But, um, yeah, so this parents saving like 40 quid a month per child. You know, parents have got like three kids and saving like £120 a month. It's an incredible uh, thing for, for people. And as, I said, as I've said before, the school I work in, like, it's, a bit, it's kind of a mixed area, but it's mostly people who ain't got a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. One thing that slightly bothered me is Suffolk seemed to be spinning it that... Part of it was to take the stigma out of getting free school meals. Oh, right. Which I think that's almost a counterproductive move. Like, there shouldn't be a st- If someone's getting free school meals because their parents don't have a lot of money... Yeah. No, that's not... That's not... That's not... Uh, like, you don't want to hide that. We should be teaching people it's fine. It's yeah. like with social housing. Like, people think... Like, there are literally people that think that if you live in a council house, you're a bum... Or even that you're poor or whatever. Like it's the reality is you're lucky. Yeah, you've yeah got, it doesn't. Uh, it's not something that should be stigmatised, and we shouldn't be going. Oh, we won't tell people what's a council house and what's not. No, like it, there's no. There should be no stigma attached to it. I had free school meals for five years at school because my dad didn't have a job, and it was fine. Yeah, like you know, obviously, like the kids I hung around with at school mostly didn't have money either. Like, and they were some of them were on free school meals. Some weren't, but like. Also, it's I think it's a very dangerous game for any government department to get into. To go, we're going to remove the stigma from this particular area of society, and you're like, I don't know if you can. I don't know if it's within your power. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You don't get to decide what kids mm. are going to laugh at and what they're not going to laugh at. So let's just say you're doing it because it'll probably make people healthier and better. Yeah. At the end of the day, you know, people you're giving food to children. Yeah, you know, it's not a, it's not a difficult one, is it? And it's a lot more than a, a piece of bread and a hot drink now. I mean, there's no hot drinks, regrettably. Like, I have school dinners sometimes, <laughs> and you can't get coffee. <laughs> but there's like a full salad bar. You wouldn't, but I mean, it's different depending on each school you go in because you. Oh, are we looking here at the legacy of Jamie Oliver? 
the positive yeah. negative, and like yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll we'll attack Jamie Oliver in a second, very gently, because yeah. you made an excellent point that we'll Thank come you. on to. But <laughs> no, but we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it. But you know, it, it it's all well and good. That, you know, part of the, the thing of school dinners is for a, a long time they were just. Uh, Burger and chips every day. But it was, just, it was a, also a, a staple for a bad stand-up, wasn't it? Oh, I remember school dinner. Yeah, yeah. Semolina was this now. Yeah. Whereas, <laughs> you know, the reality now is that... I'm not laughing at the stand-up. I'm laughing at the... Uh, my impression of the stand-up. Stand yeah. um, the actual quality of food and the range of food on offer is remarkable. And that is essentially down to Jamie Oliver. You'd, Largely, you'd yeah. I mean, obviously, as a society, we've moved in that direction yeah. anyway. We're you know, more food labelling where yeah. everything tells you how much salt is in it or whatever. Jamie Oliver shamed a nation into realising there was poisoning kids. I mean, you look at the sort of stuff that was being served up and the analysis of it, and it's not good stuff, is it? And he sort of outlined more expensive, but, you know, compared to cost against quality, much better options for kids that were, you know, there were uh, objections first that they were going to be too difficult to cook these meals yeah there were a lot of he did a tv show yeah we went uh went about improving children's school meals well highlighting the fact they were unhealthy and you did have a lot of dinner ladies on it who were just outraged they might have to do something more than opening a tin chefs are lunatic chefs (laughs) no 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 but no no i know what you mean but they kind of these people the people that were complaining no no were the least chefly people and this is what i mean because chefs like jamie oliver chefs like jamie oliver have such a bizarre concept of how long it takes to prepare a meal. Yeah, true. Like, famously, Jamie Oliver's 20-minute meals, where the cooking time is 20 minutes, mm. but it was like, you know, an hour's prep. Yeah. They don't... They Although, don't... to be fair, it's 30-minute meals. Uh, there's a couple of them that I do regularly do. And you can and do it in 30 minutes. It's like 40, Okay. Because but... this is the thing. Because they're chefs, when they're, like, chopping stuff and grating stuff, and like, that's what they live for. It's their favourite mm. thing. So they don't even think of that as work. They're just sort of like, oh, that, the four hours I spent chopping potatoes... That was a laugh. Now the work begins with I put it in the oven. Not really. It's all it's all work. And you know, Jamie Oliver was quite outspoken on his series about parents failing their kids by, you know, serving this sort of food and that sort of food and, and ignoring, you know, the reality of, of working parents mm. and and uh, budgets as well. And went yeah. further recently uh, with his most recent comment on the situation, where he claimed that parents were essentially choosing. Massive tellies and luxury goods over their kids' welfare. That was his his attack that people weren't providing proper meals to their kids, but they've got these giant tellies in their homes. And you know, there's a lot of counterpoints he made to it. The availability of uh, higher purchase, ridiculously uh, mm. oppressive credit schemes that will allow you to buy a giant telly much more easily than say setting up some sort of account with uh, a, del- a delivery service for fresh vegetables. Yeah, exactly. That doesn't and the exist. time, the time that goes into that as well. Yeah, absolutely. Into you know preparing the stuff. Yeah. So the thing is with Jamie Oliver, I think he was he was a millionaire when he was about twenty two. Yeah, this is the point you made, and I thought. It was and an he, so he has he, he doesn't understand our lives. No, you know, as in like people who live, uh, you know, live in poverty. Maybe exaggerating, but do you know what I mean? Or even also, parents uh, who don't have time. Or this whatever. is this is this forms part of that defence, but it also goes back on the attack and he's a Tory. So he he, yeah. he doesn't understand well as you pointed out, one of the burgers in his one of his restaurants is named after Margaret Thatcher. 
Oh, I think I retweeted someone saying that. Right. But, I mean, oh, I didn't even know if that was true. Uh, uh, essentially, he's, but the, his attitude is very much a Tory. He can't understand. And when you say to him, oh, you've been a millionaire since you were 22, you don't understand what people people's lives are like. His response, and I'd imagine, but I'm quite confident in saying this, would be, why isn't everyone doing what I'm doing? Why isn't everyone becoming a millionaire at 22? That's, what, that's the way Tories think. They think because they've got money that everyone can do what they do. But some of us don't want to like gouge people by uh, working in the city or working for banks that are you know, uh, leveraging uh, the working class to fund wars. We don't want to do that. We just want to, you know, have... Uh, we just want to do a free podcast. We just, exactly, exactly. So, you know, he's, he, he will make good points on occasion, but does tend to lose himself a little bit from time to time. We've gone well off the track, but the point is that... He We're is a modern-day Elizabeth Bergman. <laughs> <laughs> but no, oh, really, for Jamie really um, it, he let the government uh, legislation was heavily influenced by his campaign yeah, for absolutely. better school yeah. meals for children. And, what, and like what my point was that as much as he sort of deserves criticism, and obviously doing good things doesn't completely outweigh doing bad things, but Jamie Oliver has, has, a, has had a hugely positive impact on the health of children in the country. So bear that in mind when you kind of think he's, you know, on the attack. So yeah, to bring it back to Elizabeth Bergwin, you know, what Southwark Council is doing now and Jamie Oliver's recent efforts all echo her initial idea, the idea of providing free food for children in schools. And for that, she should be praised. She was also um, uh, uh, the first female executive, female member of the Executive Committee of the National Union of Teachers. So she's an innovator and a woman determined to make a difference within her school and within the area of education generally. However, she does stop short of being a completely modern woman. She opposes universal suffrage right quite vocally and quite openly she didn't believe that women should have the vote which seems remarkable because you'd imagine that other women who are campaigning for universal suffrage going look at elizabeth bergwin yeah look what she's doing look at this is what a woman can do uh when given the opportunity to make a difference we're you know we're visionaries and innovators and we can you know make things happen and elizabeth going thanks for that Mm. but do not let me choose who's going into Parliament because it will. Be, I, I, I'm honestly, I fall apart at that point. It's a really odd situation, and it's not just a case of her going. So I don't want the vote, as well as being on the uh, executive committee for the National Union of Teachers. She's a member of the executive committee of the National League for Opposing Women's Suffrage, which is you know to join Sweet. a club yeah. where it's sort of like, please oppress me, please whatever you do, do not allow me and people like me. To be empowered because, you know, God, I, I have no idea. I'd love to know what her reasons were for opposing it because well, I is can't she religious? see. You'd imagine you know. so at the time. Yeah. Oh, is there that? I say embedded in, you know what I mean? That women are, you know what I mean? Like not to be making decisions and stuff for that period. But even still for someone. But she's got such a good track record of making her, decisions. Yes. You make such good decisions, Elizabeth. Let yourself make more. She was also opposed to the provision of sex education for uh, pupils, which at the yeah, time... Yeah, I mean, people still are, aren't they? Yeah, there's that. And also at the time, you know, socially, you can understand that a little bit more. I mean, you, yeah. could, you could make an argument that a lot of the issues that she's facing in terms of poverty 
it's not going to be helped by the fact that a lot of these kids are going to end up having kids their own far too young and the cycle continues. So, but, you know, that apart, but just, yeah, very odd that she was so right about one particular thing mm. and then slightly off the... Like Jamie Oliver, isn't it? Yeah, this, yeah, this like is he's it. spot on about, you know, putting garlic in the... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> he knows exactly uh, yeah. when to put pepper into uh, a when lasagna. When it comes to desserts. <laughs> Elizabeth Bergwin dies in 1940 at 147 Brixton Road. But obviously spends the rest of her life in South London. So, Very recently, Beware of Mr Baker came out on DVD, a documentary about Ginger Baker that I saw at the cinema earlier in the year and I think it was knocking about festivals last year at some point. Where did you see it at the cinema? At the Curzon. I think it's Curzon co-produced it or something. It's okay. got Curzon's name on it on the DVD. So now, sort of, Ginger Baker's kind of back in the spotlight, and the kind of loose details of his life are in the spotlight too. But just before that, I, I stumbled across the fact that Ginger Baker is from South London. And I went to his official website, and I got an email address, and emailed what turned out to be his daughter, saying... Can I get Ginger Baker on South London Hardcore? And um, she made positive noises, didn't she? She seemed to think it was a possibility that it could happen. Yeah, because what I understood at that point was that Ginger Baker had been living in South Africa for I didn't know how long. I'm a big Cream fan, and you know, you kind of like with Peter Green, we were talking about a couple of weeks ago, like he's a recluse. Literally, you just know that sentence. And you just fill in the gaps in your mind. So I, I, I saw that Ginger Baker was going to be over because he was playing with Ginger Baker's Jazz Confusion at what's the the, the uh, jazz club in Soho? Jazz Ronnie Cafe of Ronnie Scotts, yeah. And so I thought, oh, I'll try and get hold of him at that point. Maybe even just turn up and try and interview him. As it turned out, Ginger Baker doesn't live in South Africa anymore. He lives in Kent, and uh, his daughter, yeah, said, yeah, you know, he might be interested. But it kind of came with some conditions. She was like, tell me more about the podcast. Um, and when I said, like, I'd like to talk to him for 45 minutes, she was like, well, he is 73 and he's, he is deaf and uh, he can't sit up for more than 20 minutes. And obviously, like, it's quite well known that he's an unpleasant man. Um, she didn't say that. <laughs> or she knows better than anyone, as we'll uh, discover. Yeah. And so I told her about the podcast. I said we had 6,000 downloads a week. Which at the time we were having about 600. Um, and I, I tried to play out the angle that we'd talk about his early life. Just talk about, you know, growing up in New Eltham. Went to Shooters Hill Grammar School. Worked in Royal Co-op in Woolwich. You know, just talk about that kind of thing. Rather than going, so what was it like when you first met Eric Clapton? Yeah. And I thought, oh, maybe, you know, he might be interested, you know, if he's he's not a busy guy. But she sent me this email back sort of saying, yeah, he don't, he's broke. And like... I don't know, she she didn't ask for money. I think it was quite clear that we weren't going to be able to pay. But sort of, she was sort of talking about, you know, how she would like to plug the book. You know, his autobiography came out, I think, five years ago, something like that. And, uh, and the film, you know, which I suppose maybe by the time I got the reply from her, the, I'd kind of realised this film was on its way out or whatever. And sort of, at, one, at some point, she sent me the email address of the other sister, um who looks exactly like Ginger Baker. And then eventually, you know, 
I got kind of got past that, and they gave me Ginger Baker's email address, and I sent Ginger Baker the email saying I oh, would really like. They said like sell it to. They did, I don't know if they forwarded it to him or what, but they said just you know send it to him too. So I sent him an email saying we'd like to do it, talk about these things. I didn't get a reply, and a few months later I sent it again, still didn't get a reply. But what sort of happened since? Sort of as made me realise that definitely don't want to be getting Ginger Baker on Southland Hardcore. When you suggested it. I was up for it because I'd heard of Ginger Baker. So I was like, oh, Ginger Baker, that'd be good. <laughs> Knowing nothing about the man apart yeah. from that he's a drummer. This is before we'd had any drummers on. I mean, we've had, <laughs> since had Sam Jeffers. <laughs> but yeah, this would have been our first drummer. It would have been a real moment. But I was like, yeah, okay, let's talk to Ginger Baker. You know, and my initial thing is very sort of surface. And like, yeah. And, and you know, as you say, the same tired things that he talks about in the interviews. I talk to him about Cream and talk to him about... Um, Fela Kuti and you know the, the things that are you know obvious about him. Your angle was much more interesting, but having done the research now and learned about Ginger Baker, you sort of feel we did dodge a bullet or possibly uh, a walking stick straight to the face. Yeah. So Beware Mr. Baker, as we said, is now available and it's well worth watching. We'll come back to it at some point and talk about the film. But it made headlines because the film opens with Ginger Baker breaking the director's nose with a walking stick. Um, and that was literally like headline news on like all the websites, wasn't it? Like, you know, it was on like, I read it on the Guardian and there was a video. Like, Yahoo news. Director. I mean, there was no way it wasn't. <laughs> no, stopping them. <laughs> I do kind of have my suspicions about that. I, you know, cause it's very beneficial for the film. And I, I would not be surprised given the kind of what you get from the director throughout the film, or at the beginning of the film, I should say, because he kind of removes himself at a certain point, that it's a possibility that was set up, Steve, I think. Yeah. But he certainly don't mind hitting people. No, he he makes makes it very clear that that is his uh, approved policy in a lot of situations. I mean, he talked about a, a letter he received from his dad when he was 14. His dad died when he was a child and left him a letter to be open when he was 14. And he quotes his dad saying, your fists will be your best pals. And he said up to that point, he'd been quite a sort of withdrawn, quiet child. And as soon as he sort of reads that, he's like, oh, right, I can punch people. I should hit people. Yeah, and that becomes uh, largely his policy. So alternately, rather than talking to him, we have put a blue plaque up uh, at 130 Southwood Road in New Elton. So I thought, when his dad said, your fists will be your best pals... Maybe he knew he was going to be a drummer. Because that's how you hold drumsticks, yeah, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Maybe he shouldn't have hit anyone. <laughs> Maybe he should have just... Mind you, he didn't need to focus, he did any, he did he did need to focus any more on drumming. <laughs> Maybe he could have been a good drummer if he really tried. Yeah. It's, he was all right. The house is gone. He lived there. He was born in he was born in Lewisham somewhere, I presume, in the hospital. Moved when he was 18 months old to this house in New Elton from Mottingham up the road and lived there till he was 20. Um and the house is gone, I think. I'm gonna, as I said, I'm gonna go there tomorrow slash yesterday. And it looks slash seven years ago. <laughs> it looks on the, on Google Maps, uh, Google Street View, like it's a block of flats now. So I'll just put it there, you know, it'd be fine. If I'd have been able to track down the record shop in Eltham, where he stole his first record, Quartet of the Year, with uh, featuring Max Roach on drums, that would have also been worth uh, whacking one of those, Steve, wouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. The other thing we haven't mentioned is that he's a heroin addict or has been on and off for decades. You you might assume that while he was in Cream from like 66 to 68, that's when that started. But he was he started on heroin in 1959. 
I mean, he is older than it, sort of slightly older than uh, the other two. But yeah, he got into heroin and African rhythms on the same night in Phil Seaman's basement. Yeah, he was drumming at the Flamingo Club in Soho and Phil Seaman saw him and saw something in him that thought, you know, this could, could be great. So they took him back to his flat and they uh, listened to uh, African drum music. And it's just a fascinating story because Ginger Baker explains how he helped Phil Seaman to shoot up. He basically mm. tied off the vein, uh, helped him inject. And he said the arm was a mess of like track marks and, and you know, scars from needles. And he ties off the vein, helps him shoot up, unties the knot and lets the heroin flood his body. And he said, you know, Phil Seaman said to him, never take heroin. <laughs> that was his... Good and advice. You, and, you that, know. and that's the thing. Yeah, you look at this guy who's just a wreck from it. But the thing was, and I suppose it is just this simplicity, where to Ginger Baker, he was the greatest drummer he knew. Mm. And, and he was on it. And he was taking heroin and he was listening to this music while on heroin. And obviously he thought he was like channeling something. It's just this bizarre thing where he's like just equated heroin use with being a good drummer. You know, every time we talk about a musician from the late 50s, early 60s, we tend to make a list of half a dozen bands that they're in before it's a band that anyone's heard of. You do. I do. Because uh, I'm fascinated. You know, it's the whole I'm idea try, of, I'm just trying to get to cream. But, but it, is, it is this whole idea of uh, the overnight success, isn't it? Everyone wants to believe that, you know, and they just, they were the Beatles and they started off and they just did the thing. And I, I'm very interested in the process. I'm very interested in sort of seeing the fluidity, the movement between various groups and meeting various people. And I think Ginger Baker is a fascinating example of this. Alexis Corner's Blues Incorporated, which is in from 1961 to 1963. Ginger Baker and two-year tenures or two-year lifespans for associated bands becomes a huge pattern that yeah. we'll, uh, we'll, we'll point out as the uh, show goes on. This is a massively important group. I'd never... I'd heard of them very vaguely, but wouldn't have been able to name anyone apart from Lexi's Corner that might have been in the band. And that, I think, even is a given. A guess. Even, <laughs> even that, I'm not going, was he in it or they just a uh, got a name from somewhere else? They're Britain's first amplified R&B group. So as far as I can understand, you're looking at the sort of transition, the first major transition from what you would call skiffle into what we would recognise as modern rock and pop music with amplified guitars and this move from acoustic to something more muscular, something louder and brasher and something more recognisable as rock and roll. It's almost like... A, an all-star band at the time. It seems to have, a, a, there's a core of members, but a lot of people pop in and out. When Ginger Baker joins, he replaces Charlie Watts, who goes off to join the Rolling Stones. He meets Jack Bruce, who he goes on to be in a couple more bands with. Uh, he meets Graham Bond, who is a bass player at this point, I think. No, saxophonist at this point. Jack Bruce is a bass player. But interestingly as well, and again, uh, Ginger Baker talks about this in the documentary, when Alexis Corner and the Blues Incorporated are playing their sets, mostly, I think they had a residency at the Flamingo Club uh, on Wardour Street, 
it's almost like the equivalent of the Sex Pistols at the Lesser Free Trade Hall in Manchester, where the people who go and see the Pistols at that gig become the Fall and Joy Division and the Smiths. You know, Alexis Cornsby Corporate are playing these gigs and John Paul Jones and Jimmy Page are there. They don't know each other, but they just turn up to see this band. You know, uh, Charlie Watts is, is playing in the band and Mick Jagger is turning up to do guest vocals from time to time. Next thing you know, they're the Rolling Stones. So Ginger Baker is drumming with Blues Incorporated. Jack Bruce is the bass player and Graham Bond is a saxophonist. When Graham Bond joins, Ginger Baker apparently warns Alexis Corner that he had his own plans and would probably nick some of his musicians. And he does. He nicks Ginger Baker <laughs> <laughs> and Jack Bruce. And they form the backbone of the Graham Bond organisation. Yeah, band I imagine you might not have heard of, Steve. Before. Never never heard of Graham Bond. Yeah. Never heard of the Graham Always Bond organisation. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. But when you put them on, it it just sounds like music you feel like... You're like, I must know this. I must know one of yeah. these tracks. Like, it's, they sound fantastic. It's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Um, and just fascinating, again, musically. Graham Bond switches from the saxophone to the Hammond organ. So, in the same way as you've got Blues Incorporated bringing amplification into the equation, suddenly Graham Bond takes the Hammond organ and goes, you can make pop music with this, with the Hammond mm. organ. And no one's really done this before. This is what's exciting about it. He decides to do this. You know, can that work? And it works a treat. It just sounds mm. remarkable, doesn't it? Really, really good stuff. He's a fascinating character, um, Graham Bond. I don't know how much you read about him. Had you heard of him before? Yeah, but only, only kind of through Ginger See, Baker. You used to buy classic rock magazine, didn't you? This is, you, I mean, that's no, thing, Mojo, maybe. Well, yes. Yeah, I should read my it? dad's Mojos. Right. And I mean, yeah, we. So you got an edge of, on me of all this stuff. Yeah, like, you know what I mean? When I, you know, when I was a kid, my dad used to listen to Cream. You right. Know, so, yeah, yeah. You know, and there's a, like, there's a load of Cream records in there. There's no, like. Uh, maybe Ground Bond organisation might have been played at some point. Yeah, fascinating guy. Um, Classic rock magazine, I believe. <laughs> so, yeah, just Mojo. <laughs> <laughs> Graham Bond is also. Uh, on heroin at this point I think Ginger Baker says that the heroin they're taking was also laced with LSD and coke as well they're doing like just these mad cocktails drugs and Graham Bond has issues with drug addiction and mental instability throughout his life he believed he was the illegitimate son of Alistair Crowley and had been abandoned at an orphanage and he gets adopted but he grows up believing that he's mm, Alistair Crowley's son, and becomes fascinated they... with the occult and various yeah. sort of magical rituals. Yeah, when the band broke up, Ginger Baker says, because Graham Bond was so heavily into smack, acid and tarot. Yeah, as you say, uh, Ginger Baker felt stifled in the Graham Bond organisation, but also claimed he'd grown tired of Graham Bond's drug addiction and bouts of mental instability, which, from Ginger Rich. Baker, is... <laughs> uh... So, similarly... After leaving Blues Incorporated to form the Grand Bond organisation, Ginger Baker and Jack Bruce leave the Grand Bond organisation, team up with Eric Clapton and form Cream in 1966. Yeah, called themselves Cream because they considered themselves to be the three best musicians around. Yeah, initially and they were called so. The Cream. Yeah, you often... And they dropped that pretty soon. If you, yeah, if you listen to... Um, 
I was listening to the BBC sessions and the guy keeps saying, you know, this one from the the jazz is the cream. <laughs> and then it also, you know that famous clip of Hendrix playing Hey Joe on the BBC in oh, black yeah. and white? And he stops, he's like, we're going to stop playing this rubbish and play this uh, from by the cream. And he play, <laughs> they play Sunshine of Your Love and it's great. And obviously yeah, the BBC yeah. went mental. And we're like, <laughs> stop innovating. <laughs> but yeah, the, I love cream. You know, particularly the Israeli gears. Uh, is like I put on the blue plaque. I put Gingerbread. I put him down as cream drummer because you know you can't put everything on. You no, know, I can't put uh, drummer with uh, fella ransom cootie and uh, <laughs> an Africa seventy on the plaque. <laughs> but you know, what I mean, that's what he's going to be remembered Absolutely, for, yeah. among other things. Yeah, you know, yeah, like, yeah, as we'll come across other. You know, it's not that's not the only timeless stuff he did. But um, yeah. Just incredible, and Ginger Baker's an, integ- an integral part of it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, in the film, he, he, you're never quite sure how much the case is being overstated, but he he wants to make it very clear that he's integral to the songwriting process as well. Like he says, yeah. he, he talks about uh, Sunshine You Love Me. So when Jack Bruce brought the music in, it was in a completely different tempo. And it was a lot slower and a lot more sort of poppy. Faster. And he's like, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, and it becomes this thundering booming. And a bit of, with a kind of rolls, which is kind of famous for, I suppose. Yeah, similarly, White Room, which is another one. They're just two, they'll be on my desert. That would be on my desert island disc shortlist, long list. Definitely wiring. <laughs> um, I don't know what this means. I wonder what four four is. But he changed it. He says from a four four to five four bolero timing, and like the song just sounds like nothing else. And that is he is integral to that. But the way things are with uh, compositions, more so then because as I mentioned Radiohead earlier, all songs by Radiohead are just say written by Radiohead now. Yeah, they could yeah. one splits the money equally. Yeah. We're a band, you know. But in those days. And probably now with other bands, half the money goes to the person who wrote the lyrics, and half the, goes to the person who wrote the melody. So the yeah. fact that like Pete Brown, who wrote some lyrics, like that, are, you know, compared to Ginger Baker changing the time of the song and stuff, <laughs> Pete Brown gets all the money. Like Eric Clapton don't get any mo- don't get very much money from Cream either. It was all like, I mean, the thing is, Eric Clapton obviously went on to be hugely successful yeah, outside how'd of Cream. How did he get by? Yeah, but like Ginger <laughs> Baker, when he says it, he's always like, you know, Pete Brown and Jack Bruce get all the money. Yeah, and that's a kind of source of bitterness and sort of, you know, the fact that he's never, you know, he blows as we'll go through his life, and he blows money here and there. Yeah. But he never has the cream money. The no. money, and you know, most of these people, most of these people got fleeced at some point or another. You know, John Fogerty, you know, Jimi Hendrix, Stones, Beatles, they all did. Yeah, cream obviously established themselves as the best of their kind. You know, you've got Clapton, who is recognised as the best guitarist in Britain at the time. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Ginger Baker, the best drummer in Britain at the time. And Jack Bruce. Do you want to just go on? To the, <laughs> the best bassist. But uh, this thing, I don't know enough about music at the time. Is there any contention? Well, I don't any... know. The thing is, they throw the word supergroup around a lot, right? And say, like, like jumping forward to 1994, when you've got Gin- uh, Baker, Bruce Moore. Right. Bruce Baker Moore, I can't remember which way around it is. When they... B- BBM, so it would be Baker, Bruce Moore. 
or Bruce Baker Moore, both going to Beasley. <laughs> they call that a super group. Who's, who's Gary Moore? Do you know what I mean? Supergroup gets thrown around a lot, but I think in the case of Cream, you know, it was legitimate. I mean, that was the thing. I've heard Cream described as a supergroup. And, like, when you're looking at the origins of Blind it, Faith, that's a supergroup. But you sort of go, <laughs> right, so Eric Clapton was in the Yardbirds yeah, yeah. before that. I've heard of the Yardbirds. Yeah, John Mayles Boothbreakers, though. Yeah, but I, but, uh, yeah, exactly. But I don't know enough about it, but I've heard of yeah. the Yardbirds. But then when you go Ginger Baker and Jack Bruce in the Grand Bond, I don't know what that means. <laughs> yeah. I don't, yeah. Is that so, uh, well, they super, and it turns out they were. So it, it was fine. Yeah, it's like Led Zeppelin, isn't it? People refer to Led Zeppelin as a super group. Yeah, because... But none of them... You know, game Yardbirds, isn't it? Yeah. You, you just have to be in the Yardbirds. Jeff Beck, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> but I think more importantly... Cream, rather than resting on their laurels and relying on their reputation, um, you know, incredible work that they do. You know, mm. people, intensely as well. People that's have, have sort of out traced, over two years. and it's fascinating as well, where people sort of go, you know, the, 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 a band exists that people can point out and go, yeah, the origins of heavy metal and prog are in here. Mm. Both of those things are in this one, and they kind of are. They're yeah, they are. Yeah. Both of those things in here. Yeah, it predates uh, Zeppelin. Uh, predates Sabbath. I mean, the first album, Fresh Cream, is the most orthodox of the three, I would say, and it, it's very much a sort of blues rock transition. It's you know the the most mainstream of the three, would you say, in terms of the sound? Um, like it's I very there's good. An element of, there's an element of self sabotage as well, isn't there? Where the the first single they put out, uh, Rap and Paper, where like Ginger Baker didn't like it. But they deliberately went f- for something that wasn't bluesy, or you know what I mean. They kind of yeah, went yeah. for something they 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 didn't just want to. They didn't give people exactly what they wanted. But then, of course, on Toad, people are getting exactly what they want with uh, a Ginger Baker drum solo as a mm. track. I mean, any doubts that you have that this guy is a superstar ends at that point. He got it? some uh, drum solos in uh, Grand Bond, didn't he? Oh, did he? I believe but he like, once a punched. Track on an album? He once punched uh, Bruce Jack Bruce in the face because he was playing a bit of bass over his solo. Apparently, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. But yeah, I think on one one of the, the two Grand Bond albums, he did the cover for one, the artwork. But um, yeah, there's a drum solo on one, I think, but not not uh, not like Toad. We've skipped ahead of the Grand Bond organisation, of course, without talking about um, how remarkable it is that Ginger Baker and Jack Bruce end up in Cream because. Ginger Baker gets so sick of Jack Bruce in the Grand Bond organisation that he fires him. And it's a bit like Gareth in The Office, where Jack Bruce sort of goes, you can't fire me. <laughs> it's a Grand Bond organisation. Yeah. So I don't think he can. So he keeps turning up to rehearsals and gigs, which just annoys Ginger Baker so much that eventually he pulls a knife on uh, Jack Bruce um, and ends up beating him to the floor and uh, kicking him repeatedly. Uh, so at that point, I think Jack Bruce takes him and leaves. But then... When it comes to form cream, I think Clapton's like, oh, Jack Bruce is good. And Ginger Baker's like, yeah, I suppose he is. Mm. We'll get him then. Just remarkable. And the fact that Jack Bruce sort of takes the call and goes, yeah, definitely. Let's get the band back together. But they do. And in 1967, go on to record Disraeli Gears, which is, and this is what I mean, the transition from sort of fresh green is, this is psychedelia, isn't it? It's yeah, so remarkably different. And, yeah, that's like, even the cover feels like a new age of music, mm. doesn't it? Is it called We're Going Wrong, that track? The yeah. drums on there particularly are just... He's, he does things that you don't hear in rock music. 
you know, the the kind the kind of rolly stuff. Like I'm no, I don't know the technical term, Steve. Rolly stuff. Don't be looking at me. <laughs> I, I'm, when you're saying rolly stuff, I'm nodding, going yes, those. But like, I suppose the kind of to put it in the most basic sense, it's bringing kind of jazz drumming to rock, and you know, later in his career, maybe it kind of it's to the detriment of the music. But in Cream, it just it elevates it to something incredible. Like, he's always so quick, Ginger Baker, to have a go at rock drummers. Like, there's a Hendrix documentary I was watching. And like, everyone obviously comes on and says how great Hendrix is. And, like, there's one Ginger Baker bit, and he just uses the opportunity to say that um, Mitch Mitchell and Noel Redding were not as good as him and uh, <laughs> Jack Bruce. And they weren't. But, like, Mitch Mitchell's fine. He's ever got, like, John Bonham. I mean, it comes up in the documentary. There's a great bit in the film where... Um... <laughs> and more importantly there's a great bit in the film where uh, they say to Eric Clapton mm. they're like you know people talk about Keith Moon and John Bonham and Ginger Baker and he looks disgusting yeah, before he even says yeah. a word his face sort of screws up and he's like no 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 Eric no, no, no. he goes ah oh, yeah no 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 and he is right I mean they're not on then you know I mean See, I'll, I'll, put, I'll put Bonham uh, well ahead of Keith Moon personally part, partly because Led Zeppelin are far better than The Who John Bonham's incredible, and it serves the music person. Music it serves the music perfectly. Like I don't like I don't know why he feels he has to be so dismissive. Like even in his autobiography, he's talking about how Keith Moon's a great guy. Like he's he's one of the funniest people I've ever met. Like he wasn't a great drummer, but (laughs) I mean, um... like there's more room in the world for drumming styles other than jazz. It, it, there's a great bit following on from the Clapton bit as well where they, they cut back to Ginger Baker and they he's like, look, you know, uh, Bonham and Mooney, yeah, they weren't as good as me. If they were alive, they'd tell you that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, I don't know if you can quote <laughs> dead men to support your argument about yourself. It's a bit... Uh... He goes, he says, uh, if they were alive, ask them. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of that noise that Eric Clapton made, there's a bit where uh, he's Ginger Baker briefly joins uh, a band called The Masters of Reality for one album in 1992. There's a track on there where Ginger Baker is basically talking the lyrics, and he's talking about Americans can't make tea. Right, so it's worth listening to that alone. Okay. But the way they sell it in the documentary is that he got sick of like touring as a support band for Metal Axe and getting stuff chucked at him, and the way they kind of sort of sum it up in the documentary some interview goes to him do you think Nirvana are the new cream and he's just like he's uh, just like similarly even more appalled so the Israeli is a great album I mean we've talked a lot about how great Ginger Baker is and rightly so as a drummer and a musician but I would argue Blue Condition bom 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 do you like it yeah because oh, I really don't like it and I thought it really derailed uh, the album as a whole Derailer gear. <laughs> it's just very. It's a, it's very slow, quite dull. I didn't really. That was a nice uh, counterpoint to the other thing. Yeah, to the okay. kind of because the other stuff is so moody and immersive, and that's just the kind Good. of fun. Uh, yeah. Like I thought, you know, the documentary. Going back to it, it. I think it ends with John Lydon. Yeah, making the point like which is completely like the every, all the evidence of the hour and a half that you've seen. John Lydon's point is just not true at all. He goes, you know, it does if you don't if you're as great as Ginger Baker and you make as great a contribution to you know the arts, it doesn't matter what you do outside of it. And yeah. that the hour and a half that you've seen the way he's treated his kids and stuff, 
It's just that's clearly not true. Yeah. But it does that and it cuts straight into blue condition on the credits. It I just... think it's perfect for the closing credits of a film. I fair. thought it kind of supported John Lydon's point. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. I think it's the perfect time to play there at that point. But I just in I was enjoying everything around this Lady Gears, and then that comes in. And I'm like, oh, I was, I was liking the bit when it was a bit more. Uh... So, what's your favourite of his composition? Sweet wine. So he gets more songwriting credits on Wheels of Fire in 1968. More progish, and there's longer songs. They see him a bit more ponderous, but still good. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Yeah. Except for the Ginger Baker songs, I think, which, you know, passing the time sounds like a nursery rhyme compared to the other sort of rock songs on the album, which I liked. And then you got like Press Rat and Warthog, where you get Ginger Baker vocals. Yeah, he's no singer, is he? No. And even and, Eric Clapton's not getting vocals. But also, as a lyricist as well, what's interesting as well about the songs that he writes, particularly on this album, and I think it was possibly I'd listen to these songs after seeing the documentary and just seeing this uh, this guy who's more like a punk than anything else, isn't it? Just sort of like you know this uh, barbarian who's when he's not hammering drums, he's hammering humans, and he's just like pulling a knife on Jack Bruce to get him out of the band. But then when he's given a chance to write lyrics, you'd imagine, particularly with the muscularity of of what Cream become in terms of the the, the the bass and the guitar and his own drumming, that he could write these incredibly you know, uh, aggressive lyrics that would suit that sound. But he's a hippie. Hmm. This, you know, those were the days. He's talking about Atlantis. <laughs> what are you doing? It, do you know what I mean? It's like the worst elements of music at this time. You know, this is the... For everything where people go, oh, but they had to take drugs. They took drugs and then all they were talking about, and Led Zeppelin do this as well, yeah. singing about fairies and they, exactly they all they all took drugs then they read Lord of the Rings and then all they were talking about was like you know uh, magic and whatnot. and like it's just like it doesn't I don't know it, it didn't do anything for me Cream Breakup in 1968 echoing back to the days of Alexis Corners Blues Incorporated it seems like amplification is the cause of the breakup. Jack Bruce gets some new Marshall stacks and he loves them. And it is, it's a bit sort of spinals happening. He's just turning them up to 11. <laughs> yeah. He is just like ratcheting out these mad sounds. And Ginger Baker's point is, I can't, you know, I can only hit these so hard. It's not mm. really fair. Um, he's also having massive hearing problems this yeah. early on as well. And, and, you know, goes on to have serious hearing problems later on. Clapton claims that at a certain point at live shows, he just stopped playing. Cause it, and he was like, no one could tell. It was, <laughs> it was just a, a wall of noise. Well, what's it? Ginger Baker reckons that Clapton's only playing louder to match Jack Bruce. That's the thing, isn't it? Yeah. What's the necessity, man, to play so loud? Yeah. I mean, having said that, though, uh, imagine Sunshine of Your Love out of a massive Marshall stack just booming straight out. That would be uh, pretty impressive. Blue condition, Steve. <laughs> Jack Bruce and Ginger Baker aren't really getting along any better than they were in the Grand Bond organisation. Eric Clapton sort of stuck between them as the peacemaker and gets a bit sick of it. He tries to get Stevie Winwood into the lineup. I think just as a buffer. Just the idea of... Keyboards, this, if this, Yeah, so there's space. Yeah. yeah, there's space for the uh, extra noise. But more importantly, I think he just wants an extra body between the two of them so that he can go and break them up when they're having a scrap in the corner. I think he just he, he gives up on that idea. 
and instead forms Blind Faith with Stevie Winwood and Rick Gretsch. And you get the feeling that he's done this mainly to get away from Ginger Baker and Jack Bruce, both of whom are just giving him earache in every sense of the word. But then the first day that Blind Faith get together to rehearse, Ginger Baker turns up. Yeah, essentially. Yeah. He just kind of... And I think it was just so awkward. They were just like, we're not going to well, kick a, him out. it's quite awkward. But B, who who are you... Who's going to get nominated to go and tell Ginger Baker to leave? <laughs> also, I think... You knew I had this night. At a certain point, Eric Clapton's almost Ginger Baker's social worker. <laughs> He's your designated carer. But, I mean, Eric Clapton said he felt awkward at first. Mm. Because he said to Jack Bruce, if... You know, if I ever end up playing with either of you, I'll end up on playing with both of you. Right. But obviously, just didn't want the no. dynamic of Cream to come back again. So it ends up with Ginger Baker in the lineup, but no Jack Bruce. No. So he's happier than he, Ginger Baker, I think. You know, oh, yeah. he was fine in it. There was no, he didn't really, you know, I don't think they played too loud for him. No. You know, he's Eric Clapton's his mate, best friend on this planet, best friend I'll ever have. He's tearful, he says in the documentary. And, uh... I can't imagine anyone would fight with Stevie Winwood. No, exactly. He's like a very yeah, general yeah. soul. But, you know, I think Eric Clapton just couldn't be in a band with him. And it's quite telling, really. It only occurred to me today, actually, that Eric Clapton has made loads of records. What, 40 years, isn't it? More, 45 yeah, yeah. years since. Yeah. And I don't think Ginger Baker's, Baker's played on a, a single track. No. And, like, that's... You'd thought you might get him in for one or two, but... He just can't be in a band with him, can he? No. Blind Faith managed to put one album together. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. The cover? I think it's, uh, it's, it's difficult, I think. Like with the Israeli Gears, they're just such iconic record covers. Like, you just grew up with this, knowing these covers. Like, you know what I mean? They're so sort of in your consciousness. It's difficult to judge them. I, li- I like it, though. Okay. I mean, it's a, what? The girl's like 14 or something. 11. Oh, well, that's fine then, isn't it? Yeah, it's an odd one where, you know, the photographer was looking for a girl. Yeah, so he went up to someone on a tube and photographed their younger sister. Yeah, he found that's, a girl on a tube creepy. and she was 14. Yeah. And he decided she was too old, but her younger sister was 11 was fine. So yeah. she's photographed topless on the front of this album. So it's, I don't know. I mean, this is the thing. As you say, Growing up, I'd never seen the cover until like three days right, ago. Yeah. So I'm just looking at it as... Just to clarify, we didn't have it in our house. As right. far as I'm aware. Well, you could get like censored versions. But it's a great album. Yeah, really good. Except for Do What You Like, which is obviously a Ginger Baker composition and therefore hippiest drivel. At this point, I think we'll do the Amazon advert, Steve. Okay. Go to... Um, no, this is me doing it. <laughs> it's good. Carry on. Go to saffronhardcore.com click the Amazon link and then buy your stuff off Amazon that you were going to buy anyway. Things to buy, all the cream records and the live cream records too. Albert Hall, you know, for Crossroads, live version of Crossroads and the Blind Faith record. After this point, you'll have to be a bit more discerning. Don't just go wildly buying Ginger Baker records. We'll let you know in a minute which ones to get. <laughs> James Cole bought, I think it was a DVD book and a comic. On the so that's you know three things he's got the hat trick. Cheers, I mean. James. Thanks, James. Set an example for all of you. So basically, after Cream, Eric Clapton 
tries to dump Ginger Baker, but like the disgruntled ex, he won't accept it and just turns up for the new band. So Clapton quits again, and it's almost like Ginger Baker takes him at this point. So he takes Stevie Winwood and Rick Gretsch and brings them over to Ginger Baker's Air Force. His new 11-piece ensemble. Yeah. Just a note on Blind Faith, though. He went on holiday to Hawaii and then Jamaica and then got back to find out that Clapton had gone off with Delaney and Bonnie to form a band. I don't know if they were in Derek and the Dominoes or something. And uh, that Stevie Winwood was getting traffic back together. Oh, right. So he was just... Uh, that was the end of Blind Faith. And I think he was having like the time of his life, really. But as you say, yeah, 1970, Ginger Baker's Air Force comes along. I'm going to say something that's going to annoy you now. And what you have to understand is that coming to... If you say you like this more than Cream. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the thing is... The thing uh, is it I might can... annoy me. It would just show listeners, Steve, what a Philistine But this is the problem. I, I can appreciate completely objectively that Cream are better than Ginger Baker's Air Force. I can accept that. <laughs> but... Just the fact uh, that they called Ginger Baker's Air Force. His drum kit has like RF. Uh, to, uh, uh, to paraphrase Partridge, Steve, Ginger Baker's Air Force, the band Cream could have been. <laughs> <laughs> but also, you know, when he's talking about it in the film, Ginger Baker points out, you know, um, yeah, you know, we grew up listening to big bands, and I wanted to have a big. And this is what it is, you know, the people he recruits. It's it's almost like his dream project where he can get hmm. anyone in. So he gets. You know, as I say, Stevie Winwood and Rick Gretsch come along, gets Denny Lane in. Graham Bond. Graham, Graham Bond comes back, back on the saxophone, you know. Um, gets gets Phil Seaman in. It's not unusual for them to have, like, a two-drummer lineup, And, like, you know, Ginger Baker, uh, famously, with a two-kick drum setup. So, you, you know, he's he's already getting incredible sounds out of his kit. Get another one in there as well. Just, um, yeah, I don't know, a lot of fun it looked like as well. Yeah, they did a live... Their first record is recorded live. Yeah, live at the Albert Hall. It doesn't sound particularly good. I wonder if that was my copy only, but then I read a Robert Christogal review. He was uh, saying the sound was bad, so presumably that's uh, on all the records. But then the second one, they go into the studio. Some more original material, isn't it? Different lineup. This is the thing, I mean, you know, as I say, if you look at the, the, the bands that we've talked about previously, you're looking at sort of... Two, two and a half years top whack. Ginger Baker's Air Force lasts a year. There's two albums in that year, but the difference in personnel between those... I mean, at this point, Ginger Baker can't keep a band together for more than one album. And I'd imagine a lot of it would be to do with the fact that you've got to work alongside Ginger Baker. Yeah, there's also the dividing up the money. Um, he just was not making any money. Well, he was paying everyone, wasn't he? Yeah. That was essentially the thing, because he got to get... I mean, that's the thing... I think there's visa issues as well, you know, trying to move, like, this many people around. The problem with Ginger Baker's Air Force, Steve, and with the rest of his career, there's always a drum solo around the corner. You know, you you know it's coming. It's not like in, um, in like, a, in like a, say, a Cream Live show. Well, I suppose you do know it's coming there. But you know what I mean? It's kind of, it's built around great, uh, great things. Worst drum duets, never any need for that, is there? <laughs> One drum kit is more than enough, certainly in Ginger Baker's case. And most of all, drums, they're not a lead instrument. No. Like, you don't build a band around drums. Like, he's an integral part of Cream, but 
you don't start off with the drums and then go like, oh, we'll have these horn players. Like, I'll do a bit of drum stuff and you just back me up. It's not how co- drums I work. It's quite interesting, though. No, I don't know enough about music. To know uh, if that's impossible. But the thing is, we'll move on in a moment to the African stuff. Yeah, where um, you know, I'm going to talk so broadly about African music now. The whole <laughs> continent, Morocco to uh, Johannesburg. <laughs> you know, a lot of it's built around percussion, so it's right. a different thing. And we'll talk about Felicuti in a moment. I'll um, make a, a point about drum solos, and I, I, it's to back up your point. Where, as I say, I uh, I think I like the idea of Ginger Baker's Air Force much more than I've actually like sitting down and listening to. It's Ginger not Baker's bad. Record. It's a, they're, they're two decent records. But if you look at Toad, which is you know the most famous example of Ginger Baker uh, solo, it's an album track, and it's five minutes long. When he's in Ginger Baker's Air Force, there's versions of Toad that he's doing live and on record, I think, that are 13 minutes long. Yeah. So suddenly you go, oh, you know, Toad's interesting. It's nearly three times as long now. Yeah. So you're like, is it three times better? Is and it, even is with, with John there? Bonham, you know, Moby Dick is the one. And then it, the guitar comes back in and it's credible, incredible. Yeah. And the same with uh, Whole Lot of Love. You know, it's not really a drum solo, is it? Whole Lot of Love. It's more of a drum. A drum break. Yeah, but yeah. it goes on a while. But then you know that this incredible other stuff is coming back in. Well, this is the thing, and it's, it's a similar. Not, it's not like oh, this is the main instrument. It's just like a break. It's a similar thing to hip hop as well, isn't it? Where a lot of the time you're waiting for the drop, you're waiting for the bit where the beat comes back in or the vocals come back in. You're waiting for the the transitional moment to end, and it's about that anticipation, about the impact of the new sound coming in. And if it's just in the same way, if it's just a guitar solo, you know, yeah. solos by their very nature. You know, I'm here to see the band. But 1970 was momentous for Ginger Baker because he uh, went to Africa and uh, immersed himself in the culture, didn't he? Yeah, he and it's the thing, you know, in popular music over the last sort of 20, 30 years. Yeah, Paul Simon. Yeah, exactly, band. yeah. I mean, these Damon are people... Auburn, Marley music. These are people who go on holiday and yeah. come back with an album. He moved... When you say he, went, went to, he went to Ghana and then drove to Nigeria in a Land Rover. And then lived there for, you know, six years. Six years, he said, yeah. So, well, I mean, and he, we come back, he goes back to Africa later on, but yeah, yeah, six years. So it's not just the case of, you know, cultural tourism or a little holiday and coming back with an album where you... No, he was part of the Calakuta party with uh, Felakuti, wasn't he? Yeah. Built a studio there, strong-armed out by EMI, essentially. And I hadn't realised this. Paul McCartney um, Wings recorded Band on the Run in Nigeria. Uh, half of it in Ginger Baker's studio. I, I didn't realise that. Yeah. Oh. And I think he even like, might play on a couple of tracks. Uh, not Maybe not even a couple. Maybe even one. They don't do very much. So he's reunited with uh, Danny Lane. He's, he from, is, yeah. Uh, Ginger Baker's Air Force. But they were on EMI. And EMI made it very difficult, apparently. This was really well done in the documentary, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean... You know that eternal question, Steve? If you had a time machine, where would you go? Yeah. Right. Nigeria, 1971. Yeah. Lagos. Straight there, downtown Lagos. Just, just looks like incredible, doesn't it? Those fella cootie gigs just look like... They look like so much fun. Yeah. And obviously, like, you've got kind of military-type people walking around. But part of it, I imagine, part of the, the energy and the excitement is the fact that fella cootie, as well as being a, just a tremendous musician, just ridiculously talented wasn't using uh, his fame to get drugs and women and money and he was. Rolls Royces. Yeah, he was. But, but do you know what I mean? <laughs> he but, was also using but it. Exactly. He's also, uh, you know, it's not, 
John Lennon's thinking, thinking about imagine no possessions while walking through a mansion, and he's got uh, you know a Rolls Royce made of uh, you know fur coats in there, <laughs> a gold plated yeah. top hat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he records with Fella Cootie. Yeah, the li- live exclamation mark, which Ginger Baker's on half of, and there's four tracks. As someone who works in a shop, just a plea to any sort of right, but musicians in this case. Don't call your album live. Hmm. Even uh, the one with the exclamation mark. What's it? It's called live. Hmm. Uh, you put it into computer. I'm not getting anything. Well, I mean, to be fair, on the cover it says "Fella Ransom Cooey and the Africa Seventy with Ginger Baker live." Okay, so you can't get it from that, Steve. Yeah, I'm, I'm getting one match. <laughs> is that the one? Yeah, that is the one yeah, I want. So in order. Good, isn't it? Oh yeah. I'll, I do like Fella Cooey. I'm it's kind of new to him. Yeah. I'm a bit overwhelmed by the fact that he has so many records, like so prolific. But great. No, it's tremendous stuff, isn't it? And you say the, the footage, mm. the sort of archive footage of the time, just, it, you know, uh, it's, it's psychedelia. Yeah. It's African psychedelia in the 70s. And these people are just like, it just looks remarkable, doesn't it? Yeah, there's a, I've got this uh, compilation, by, what are they called? Soundway or something? Uh, called The World Ends, uh, Nigerian Psychedelic Rock in the late 60s and early 70s and that's brilliant that's yeah. well worth uh, well worth a go on Amazon through the South Island Hardcore link puts out um, Stratavarius while he's there as well which Felicuti plays on while he's in Nigeria he develops I don't know whether you'd call it a hobby or a habit that's probably and this is going to sound really uh, probably offensive but you could argue that Polo ruins his life as much as heroin it's like Bleeding Gums Murphy with his uh, Fabergé egg habit, isn't it? He just, he, the money that uh, Ginger Baker from this point on till today, as far as I can determine, will spend on horses is outrageous. I mean, you know, it's, it's his money, I'm not telling him as well, but it's clearly a huge factor in the problems that he has from this point onwards. Yeah, later on shipping 30 horses over from... Argentina. I think he spent his 2005 Cream Madison Square Gardens Royal Albert Hall reunion money on... On polo ponies. Yeah, yeah. I think he made £5 million and spent it all. It's Nigeria where he's first introduced to the sport. He tells a story about... He's essentially... It sounds like he's just sort of carpet-bagged and dragged down to the polo club by someone while he's drunk. And they stick him on a horse. And they give the horse a little whip on the rump and sends it off galloping and Ginger Baker falls in love with Polo almost immediately and becomes a regular at the Lagos Polo Club Uh, and as he puts it he spends his days playing Polo at the Lagos Polo Club with essentially members of Nigeria's government and Mm. nights playing gigs with Fela Kuti where Fela Kuti's calling out members of uh, Nigeria's government, which is a fascinating dynamic to your life, I'd imagine. But he's forced out of Nigeria, comes to Britain, and joins, or helps to form, the Baker Gerwitz Army in 1974. You're pronouncing it with a W, yeah? Is it a V? Well, it's a V, isn't it? (laughs) They're a, you know, hard rock outfit, aren't they? Two brothers, Adrian and Paul Gerwitz, is it? Yeah. Yeah, it's very sort of compared to what he's been doing. It's quite traditional stuff. It is, but I thought 
I did think the third record's no good, but I thought the first two records had some highlights, man. There's some good songwriting on there. You can rock out to it. Do you know what I mean? That's the kind of main thing. It's kind of hard rocking and it does work. Yeah. And I also think Ginger Baker's playing does elevate it. Where maybe later on... No, forget that too. Um, Right, no, that'll do. Elevate it, yeah. I found myself... I had it sort of playing in the background while I was making some notes for the show. And uh, at one point, I found myself virtually headbanging. Just sort of mm. like really getting yeah. into it. And I was like, and I'd sort of lost track at this point. So I like clicked back to YouTube. I was like, what am I listening to? And I was like, oh, right. This is, uh, and it's, just, it's almost like a guilty pleasure. Where when you listen to it closely, you go, oh, this isn't good. This is just really standard hard rock. And you listen is, to the lyrics yeah. and you go, oh, this is really bad. But it's really well done, standard mm. hard rock. On the first album as well, we get another uh, Ginger Baker moment. Another little uh, songwriting effort and vocal performance. Mad Jack. It's quite good. It's it's my favourite Ginger Baker vocalised song, I would, I'd go as far to say. But you, and you see how central he become. I mean, obviously, he's Ginger Baker in a rock band. But, um, you know, you were saying earlier about you don't build a song from the drums. But the second album opens with the track people which starts with a drum solo this little mm. sort of showcase of ginger baker just doing various sort of drum sounds and then the you know the rest of the band come it's quite a you know interesting fresh little sound i think yeah i'm surprised they're not better known really going you know i thought they were maybe because the name the name is it's just probably not one of those things where we i mean i guess and also it is a kind of little bit behind the time but only slightly i mean it's 1974 do you know what i mean I'm it's the sort of thing though where and there's a lot of great stuff at that point as well sorry when you go to youtube comments though there's always going to be like two or three comments down someone going i love this uh, this band they're the best they've just been forgotten see your things tail off a bit puts out an album he says admits it's not good Plays in Hawkwind for one album that he says I've not heard it, but he says it's rubbish. So I probably won't bother that. Then moves to Tuscany on top of a mountain in like an abandoned house, and that seems to be where. He, I mean, he hits bottom just constantly through life, doesn't he? Every time you think he's hit bottom, yeah. he does something. But this one was pretty. It's just pretty miserable. I think he's just up there on his own, can't speak Italian, and in 1986. I'm not sure how long he'd been there exactly, but John Lydon sent the producer, Bill Laswell, I think his name is, to go and get Ginger Baker to play on this Pearl record. Well, he has an unfortunate, there's an unfortunate backdrop to his move to Italy where around this time, just before he moves to Italy, he leaves his wife, his long-suffering wife, uh, who was essentially raised their children alone and had to deal with various Ginger Baker-related incidents throughout their marriage. Um, he leaves her for one of his daughter's friends. She's like mm. 17 or something. Uh, they get married and he, he moves over to Italy with her. But as his daughter points out in the documentary, this girl thought she was marrying a rock star and just ends up living with this old guy in a shack on top of a mountain in Italy with like a couple of horses and five dogs. So his daughter goes out with some friends to visit and... His wife then runs off with one of these fellas and goes back to Britain. Uh, you know, which, as they point out in the film, is pretty much a taste of his own medicine. Because he's, you know... Mm, yeah, out his daughter people. has a... Or is it his wife? No, his daughter in it who seems to have this smirk on her face. Yeah, she's sort of like going, that is what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. But as you say, yeah, uh, John, John Lydon 
extends a, a branch out to him. Until the Cream reunion in 2005, you know, it's, it's 20 years of... Do you know what I mean? Mm. As we've said, like, guesting on yeah. on albums, bits and pieces here and there. Like, I listened to a couple of his jazz fusion records, Horses and Trees and The Middle Passage, and they were both really bad. It's also at this point that his health goes into serious decline. Oh, well, can I just quickly yeah. just say one more thing here? Um... A live album called African Force from 1987, which is the first time I've heard a live album, live track that fades out. <laughs> this drum bit's just going on and on, and it's just, but is that fading out? And it's just, it's not even the last track. And 1987, he was in a band called No Material, put out a live album, and the band were together less than a week. So two years, starting to seem like a long old time. <laughs> but that wasn't too bad, I thought. If you like improvised jazz, which I don't particularly... Similarly with Ginger Baker Trio. Like, it's, you know what I mean? It's not bad yeah. for a bit of improvised jazz, jazz for the background. But you're not, you know, there's no need to be diving into his solo work really at this point. Although he is playing in London next week. So if you want to see Ginger Baker's Jazz Confusion, he's playing at Stratford something or other on the 20th. And the, the aforementioned uh, Baker Bruce Moore, who he's, you know, admitted doing for the money, which is no, which is rubbish. You know, it's just... Uh, Described as a short-lived power trio. I mean... Yeah, blues revival stuff. He describes it as contrived. And weirdly, it's his most... It's the only record I've heard of his where his playing is like... Don't even sound like him. Yeah. It's just so pedestrian. They don't last very long, Baker Bruce Moore. And part of it... Probably Gary Moore starting loads of trouble, I guess, isn't it? Well, no, part of it is that Gary Moore cancelled some gigs because he had... It was tinnitus. Gary Moore starting trouble. Right? But no, he had tinnitus. Right, yeah. And like, despite the fact that Ginger Baker is, can't hear anything, like that annoys him that he's cancelling gigs for that reason. Yeah, yeah. And he also, he cancelled one gig Gary Moore because he cut his finger on a tin. And, uh, <laughs> and Ginger Baker's like, Eric Clapton would never have, you know, we've repl- basically, you're in this band and it's basically Cream but you replaced Eric Clapton with this guy who I should have written down what bands he was in but the fact that I can't remember says it all really. Ginger Baker's health in serious decline at this point. He's got hearing problems. He's got severe arthritis. I mean, mm. he can't sit up for long no. periods. I mean, dr- he, he describes drumming, drumming yeah. as, as just torturous for him now. He's also got um, a respiratory condition called COPD, which in the film you see him using a sort of inhalation device to sort of clear out his lungs. He's still smoking because he thinks the uh, smoking's helping with his arthritis, which I'm no doctor. But I don't don't know. I don't know. Maybe. It's possibly psychosomatic. His most recent adventure, if we want to look at things in a quite light-hired manner, involves some some light fraud and uh, outrageous defences in 2008. Did you hear about this? Uh, Yes, I did, yeah. See, this is... um... This is the intro to the documentary, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Jay Bolger. Saying, I was curious about this... uh... This character, not yeah. the drummer from Creep. <laughs> like, you know, this guy who was going to, as you're going to say, Steve, drop his pants in uh, it's, South it's, it's, it, This does, I joked earlier, but this sound reads like something of Yahoo News, doesn't it? It's yeah. just a uh, man will. Yeah, essentially, uh, Ginger Baker gave a bank clerk, uh, it sounds like just all the information about his financial affairs and trusted her to make sure that the money was in the right places. Possibly uh, when... We say that he means stables so that he can, you know, house some horses. She steals money from him 
Uh, and when he's accused of stealing money from him, uh, claims that her and Ginger Baker are lovers and the money was a gift and uh, that he is only claiming it's theft now because they're no longer intimate. He counterclaims that if they were intimate, she would be able to describe a scar that he has on an uh, intimate part of his body and offers to drop his trousers in court to challenge her assertion that she's seen him naked. She's convicted of fraud, so clearly uh, his strategy works. It sounds like something out of like L.A. Law or something, or like Ali McBeal. Yeah. Like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, wasn't Ali McBeal? <laughs> yeah, that was in South Africa, wasn't it? He was there. For, yeah, that's where he kind of ended up washed up almost. But uh, as as they don't address this in the documentary, I don't think, do they? But because it's made just before he kind of goes broke again and uh, ends up back in Kent. Yeah, um, yeah, that's where he is now. I mean, he'd be in, in America doing a tour next month. The film is tremendous, isn't it? It is, yeah. The film's called Beware of Mr. Baker, and the title comes from a sign that's just inside the gate of his house as the filmmaker drives in. Ginger Baker claimed that he basically made powerful enemies at the local polo club, uh, who wouldn't... Apparently they were racist and they still had sort of like uh, apartheid views on how polo clubs should be run. Whereas Ginger yeah, Baker... was the last place to yeah, change. Yeah, last sort of bastion. Yeah. Um, whereas Ginger Baker was quite sort of... He's obviously opposed to anything like that. Um, so he claims he made powerful enemies there and... They spray-painted on the wall of his house, beware Mr. Baker. So he had a sign made that said, no, beware of Mr. Baker. Mm. And it's the sort of thing where you go, fair enough, you might be very powerful politicians and you know uh, industrialists in South Africa. He reckons they had access to a militia. If it comes down to a scrap, I'm probably... <laughs> do you know what I mean? Probably going to stand next to Ginger Baker with a walking in stick. Even in his 70s, yeah. And there's horses in it. We can get away if we have to. The bit that angers Ginger Baker in the documentary is the guy basically does a lengthy interview with him that forms the heart of the film. Yeah, whilst living with him for several yeah. months, maybe. Yeah, yeah, it looks, looks very sustained. Um, and then, having finished all his work with Ginger Baker, then tells Ginger Baker he's going to go and interview other people. And it appears that Ginger Baker's furious at this. Possibly thinking, you can't talk to my kids because they'll tell you about all the things I did and didn't do. I didn't see him for years, and the son tells an awful story about mm. being stranded. You really feel for the son more. Yeah, than yeah, one, you? yeah. It's it's a horrible, horrible situation. Um, yeah, and that seems to be what angers him and forces not forces him but uh, leads him to uh, forces him to break yeah, a man's I, nose I, what am I supposed to do <laughs> not break a man's nose um, yeah that sort of lead. but then you know as you say uh, I was going to say it's not doing him any harm the filmmaker he's got a broken nose but uh, it's certainly it's but it pushed the film to yeah. another level didn't it Definitely, in terms yeah. of like festival access mm. and, and just general publicity hype but yeah, definitely, definitely worth seeing. Yeah, get older the film. I think it's on iTunes as well as probably the Curzon website. Actually, they do streaming as well as if you want to get it off Amazon. The autobiography doesn't disappoint. 
I mean, it's no great work of literature. But, you know, for sex, drugs and violence, I mean, it's full of it, you know. <laughs> and if you want to know about the time Ginger Baker was stuck in a blizzard with Manfred Mann, that's also... Uh, I, if anyone wants my copy, I'll put it in the post here, or you can collect it from Steve at Gosh. <laughs> tweet us at SLHC. Seriously, I've read it now, and I'm not. I don't need to keep it. Or email us southlandhardcore at gmail dot com, facebook dot com slash southlandhardcore. Yeah, basically the first person that gets in touch to because it'll prove you listened to this episode all the way through, so you'll definitely deserve yeah. a prize. 